Welcome to Psyched, a podcast about psychiatry that covers everything from the foundational to the cutting edge, from the popular to the weird. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, this is David Carrion. This is Jesse Gold. And this is Psyched. Today we have Mark Lukacs. Um, a teacher and freelance writer. His work has been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Pacific Standard, Wired, and other publications. He's currently the ninth grade dean at the uh, Athenian School, where he also teaches history. He lives with his wife, Julia, and their sons in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mark first wrote about Julia in a New York Times modern love column, and again in a piece for Pacific Standard Magazine, which was the magazine's most read article in 2015. Mark, thank you for joining us. Sure thing. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so, so Mark, tell us, uh, tell us about this, this piece uh, that you wrote about, and uh, what, what's the story behind it? Sure thing. So um, I've written about, I I'm actually don't initially identify as a writer. I really am a high school teacher, right? And I met my wife, Julia, when we were actually in our first week of college. And it was very much um, puppy dog, love at first sight, like chasing rainbows into the sunset kind of thing, you know, where it just, it just felt like a fairy tale in many, many ways. Um, we ended up getting married pretty much directly out of college and moved to California soon after that. And um, I just kind of thought, like, the future was set. You know, I had this amazing woman who I was in love with, who I was married to. We are going to have a family. I was doing my dream career of teaching high school history. And then when we were 27, um, Julia ended up having a psychotic episode. This was totally out of nowhere for us. Um, And its onset was really disorienting and pretty terrifying just because we had like no sense of what mental illness looked like. You know, Julia was definitely always really ambitious and had some perfectionist tendencies and could be hard on herself, but in no way would that to me indicate or like, I didn't expect or have any reason to expect that she was going to end up having delusions and be fully paranoid and have to get hospitalized. So basically where, how it all went down was that, she ended up starting a new job and for whatever reason, the combination of the work stress and just the self-imposed expectations, she kind of got paralyzed with anxiety at work and just had a hard time doing even fairly menial tasks, just like day-to-day emails. She would overthink everything. She'd forward them to me to proofread these like two sentence emails and say, you know, I've been working on this for two hours because I want to make sure it's just right. You know, and that was nothing like the Julia that I had known before, who was always so effective and efficient at work. And um, it kind of started looking like that. And then it grew where she ended up experiencing, like she was having a hard time falling asleep and she lost her appetite. And then eventually she ended up just not sleeping at all. And I'm like, what's going on? You know, like what's happening to you? And I, I actually had a friend who was getting a PhD in, psychiatry and um i checked in with him and he's like you know what she's probably just adjusting to this new world this new job this like it was her most important job she'd had 
And so we were kind of like, it's just situational. She's hopefully going to settle in and adjust. And I thought that was really good advice, but I had a hard time accepting that Julia couldn't just figure it out. You know, I was like, Julia, you're tired. You've been working hard. You like, just go to sleep. I don't get it. Like, why can't you fall asleep if you're tired? And if you feel so upset, why can't you just relax and take it easy? You know, because I, I was really naive and I think unfortunately pretty unhelpful in that way too, because I just kind of thought, well, when you're having a tough time, you take care of yourself, you get a good night's sleep, you, you step away from the stress and then everything's going to be okay. And it wasn't for her. She um, got rapidly worse. And in the stop sleeping phase, she ended up experiencing delusions. And that's why when I had ended up taking her to the emergency room where they admitted her for uh, and said she was psychotic, I literally didn't even know what that word meant. You know, I kind of thought they meant she was like a psycho killer or something and so that she was dangerous. But I didn't think she was actually dangerous to anybody. I just thought this woman's really tired and really stressed out and needs to just rest. And so my expectations of what was going to happen in the hospital were also very unrealistic. I thought that they would just like give her the right pill or two and 48 hours later she'd be home and she'd be back at work within a few days, just kind of back to herself. And instead they, you know, they experiment with a lot of different medication. She ended up being in the hospital for 23 days. Um, I took that time off work. I actually took the semester off of teaching so that I could be there to support her through this. She came home and was admitted to an outpatient program where at admission they said, you know what, our average time in here is like four to six weeks. And Julia ended up being in that program for nine months just because they continued to struggle to find the right medication that could support her. And so I was thrust into the world of caregiving. Um, and your question was about writing. And this is like a really long answer to get to that because when Julia was hospitalized, I'm a historian, right? And so I go and I research to find answers. And I, was, I learned a lot about mental illness by reading books, researching the internet, etc. But I, I was really shocked to find that there was almost nothing out there about caregiving around mental illness, especially in the context of uh, like a romantic relationship. I did find some stuff about parents trying to support their children, which I, I think is really useful and mostly relevant, but I also think there's a really big difference between a relationship between a parent and a child and a relationship between two partners who are trying to be equals, you know, and who share a bank account and stuff like that. So I was just, I felt of the many, many feelings that I had throughout this, like just abject sadness and fear. Um, all of it was compounded by this sense of loneliness. And even though I wasn't the only person in the world going through this, I sure felt like it because I couldn't find anybody out there who was talking about it. And so I, I won't say that was my initial motivation to write about Julia's mental health and, and my caregiving of it. But when we ended up, like when she ended up getting out of that outpatient program, um, we kind of 
had the idea that maybe our story could help people. That Julia, if she was willing to sort of share her experience, and if I was willing to share my experience as a caregiver, we could connect with um, people who also felt that sense of loneliness. And so the first piece that I wrote was for the New York Times Modern Love column, and it got published, and um, it got a lot of attention. There's no question about it. I ended up getting a lot of emails because I think it struck a nerve with people who were like, I'm in a really similar situation, and I haven't found people who are writing about this. And so then a few years later, I ended up working on a magazine piece that detailed not only Julia's first episode, but also her second episode and how it was connected to the fact that we had become parents in the middle of it. Um, and that was called My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward. It was in Pacific Standard Magazine. And I hate using this phrase, but for lack of a better term, that piece went viral in that it had like a few million reads within the first week of it. And I was getting, you know, for, for a few weeks, I was literally getting like over 100 emails a day of people and almost every single one of them said, thank you for writing this. Now here's my story because I think it just, it, 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 it was amazing to see how many other people felt that loneliness that I have felt. And so that magazine article led to me having the opportunity to turn it into a full book. The book's been out for about a year now. It's actually coming out in paperback in early May. Um, and it's had a, what has been for me a pretty similar effect where it's just prevented, presented me with these amazing opportunities to speak to people who are also in a family dynamic that's impacted by mental illness, whether it's someone who they themselves have been diagnosed and I've gotten feedback that it's just given them a little bit of a sense of perspective on what their family members might go through or um, the caregivers. And, and it's just, it's, I don't know, I, I'm so humbled that people have taken the time to read this because I, I, the fact that it's making people feel a little less alone um, is just such an amazing sense of like, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to do this for. Because the, the, the tragedy of mental illness is that where people are scared to talk about it. And so even though we're suffering and struggling, we add that extra layer of difficulty because we think it's something that's too scary to share with your friends or share with others. And as a result, you lose perspective on how many people are going through this and how if you actually do open up and talk about it, you can support each other, you can swap resources, you can share strategies, et cetera, et cetera. And so where we are today in 2018, um, Julia has actually been hospitalized a total of three times. That first one was back in 2009. Her second one was in 2012. And then the third was in 2014. Um, they've all happened in the fall. They've all followed a very similar trajectory of starting with psychosis and then being followed by a very lengthy suicidal depression. Her official diagnosis is bipolar one. Um, to support that, she's on lithium, which has turned to be really great for her. It feels like it helps to manage the illness without creating unwanted side effects. And so we feel um, we're cautiously optimistic that we have found a way to manage this in our lives and to still get to 
be the type of individuals and family that we had always dreamed about. You know, Julia is back to thriving in her career, and that hasn't been an issue. Um, I'm still a high school teacher. Our firstborn is almost six years old, and actually, Julia gave birth to our second child, and um, things are going really wonderful there. And um, he's an awesome little guy, and Julia loves being a mom. And I just, I, I don't want to say, I never want to think, oh, this is behind us because I know that bipolar is a lifelong condition and there's always reason to have to be, you know, cautious. But I do feel really um, hopeful that through these really difficult years, we've learned how to care for ourselves and each other so that her bipolar does not have to be something that ruins our family like we feel like regardless of how many future hospitalizations there may be we think that we can make it as a family so that was again you literally asked one question and i just took off and ran with it so i hope that's okay but that's kind of the context of our family's story and um the writing i've done about it yeah mark thank you so much for telling us that story i mean it's such a powerful story and one of the things that just strikes me about how you tell it is um, you started the story with the the puppy dog rainbows into the sunset love right. and that, that's that's apparent and palpable in the way you tell the story that you are in love with your wife yeah you know and I think that um, I am yeah <laughs> I don't know what else to say other than yes I agree with you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I just, I love that. Um, it's, it's often hard for people, as we see people who, who have mental illness. It's often hard for them to, for, for people outside of the field to realize that there are real lives and real stories, and people can get back to thriving. Um, that doesn't always happen, but it happens. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and it's, it's such a, such a good. Um, balance between yeah things are hard but that doesn't change the fact that she's a person with who you're in love with who um can be back to thriving despite us uh despite some very serious challenges yeah and you know i think that through her diagnosis i had to kind of redefine what love is and what caring for someone you love looks like because i think my original thought was when someone you love is in pain, you basically wrap them up in a bear hug and you like you become their cocoon against the harshness that is hurting them. Right. And I also thought that it meant um, problem solving. I thought, Hey, you're sad. So I'm going to help you feel better. Hey, you're feeling suicidal at this moment. I'm going to change the topic so that you don't have to think about that and you can think about something else. And I think what I had to learn in response to both of those views is for the first one, I really had to learn the limitations of um, myself. You know, I saw a therapist throughout this and she used to always say, the good news and the bad news is that you're just not that powerful. And I had this, this expectation that as her husband, I was going to fix her, which is ridiculous, but I still felt it, right? And I kind of had to just let that go and um, 
trust the process a little bit more, still be, you know, fully informed and researched and in communication with the doctors as much as I could, but also understand that like the human brain is way more complicated than something that just a bear hug can fix. And then I think the other thing that I really had to learn was that when people are in pain, they're not necessarily looking for a problem solver, right? Um, if, if I'm having a crappy day and I want to talk to someone about it, it's not necessarily helpful for them to be like, well, let's come up with a, a five-point plan for how to make you your day go better. You know, that a lot of times what people are actually just looking for is someone who's going to sit back and listen to them and not judge them, but just let them feel that way. And that the mere acknowledgement of your pain can help to heal that pain. And it's so interesting because like I myself and like come from a family of doers, we're like hands on, let's get there and fix it. And the act of listening looks like a very passive activity, right? Cause you're literally just sitting there, but I've realized that it's, not only really difficult to do, but it's one of the most helpful things you can do is to shut up, not try to solve things, but just to be there and to listen um, became one of the most important things that I could provide to Julia. That if she was fearful about a relapse, that I shouldn't get in there and try to talk her out of that fear, but just to let it be. And if she was feeling suicidal in a moment, as long as I was with her and I knew she was physically safe, those feelings couldn't like they they were sad they were hard to hear but that didn't mean i needed to deny their existence instead i needed to do the exact opposite so i really do think that like what our love looked like when we met and got married has changed a lot um over the last 10 years um as it's been reshaped by this uh her mental health diagnosis yeah I mean, I, I'm struck by a lot of what you've said. Um, one thing I was thinking was you mentioned that a lot of people write about this, their parents writing about children, and oftentimes when people get sick, they um, almost take on a parental role for the person that they love. And it sounds like you tried to not do that. And I, well, you know, like as much as possible because you still... Well, I actually you know. think I very much did in the beginning. I yeah. think it was instinctive you know um and it it like on the one hand i get where i was coming from you know if julia was left to her own devices she would have stayed in bed all day or she would have done something much worse like drive to the gold gate bridge and jump off and because she talked about that all the time like i know that's something she wanted to do so there had to be a part a part of this where i was kind of controlling and dictating how she spent her time in the way that a parent does a child. Um, but I had to kind of learn the balance of saying, yes, I'm here to help keep you safe. But that doesn't mean I'm going to try to run your life. And actually I didn't do that well at all in the first episode, the first episode, I very much ran the show. And after the first episode, I, I got when Julia was healthy and like balanced and stable in between, she was really mad at me and I couldn't understand why. And I was like, I just basically gave up my life for almost a year to take care of you. And you're mad at me? Like, how does that work? And it was because she felt like 
her voice was not listened to during that care. If her doctor said something and Julia said something, I was going to instinctively listen to her doctor. And I would sort of write off Julia's perspective as, oh, well, she's sick, right? And she doesn't get it that like the weight gain is worth it because the medicine are helping stabilize the psychosis. So you'll be fine, Julia. Don't worry about it, you know? Um, and instead, I had to really see and experience her, her resentment about how I had treated her to kind of snap out of it and realize, you know what? I'm, I'm not helping by treating her like a child. I'm not supporting her by parenting her. I actually need to let her have a voice in this whole thing. And um, it's hard to have someone let someone have a voice when they think if you come near me, you might get infected by the same devil that has infected me. Right. And so what that looked like for us, and this is what really that magazine article I wrote was really about was that we needed to basically work in between the crisis to plan for the crisis so that if, if we faced a crisis, I would be able to advocate for Julia's point of view because she had already shared it with me, right? As compared to not talking about the crisis, getting into it, and then I just kind of have to act on instinct and hope that I'm acting in Julia's best interest, but not actually know that for certain. So um, it took a lot of failure to get to that point, you know? And I, and I tried to be honest about that in my book because I think it's, I don't, I'm, I'm, I get like, I'm not saying that to judge myself and like beat myself up, but because that's just the process it has kind of has to go through, you know, you kind of have to learn by doing what it is to really support each other um, because you don't know what that support needs to be until you actually face it. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's such a, um, the way you approach your story and you know looking at your own part and how things could be better it's so easy uh, and i think this is this is partly what you're talking about before and what we've experienced a lot too in, in terms of um stigma oh well they're just crazy um you know we are the ones uh, whether it be psychiatrists or the institutions or society we know best um the people who have mental illness they don't they don't need a voice because we've got, you know, we're, we're going to be their paternal do- paternalistic doctors or uh, right. we're going to be the ones who, who get to say what happens. Um, and, and I really uh, appreciate your, your reflections on, on how, um, how the, the sort of, why can't you just um, approach to people who are suffering isn't, uh, isn't necessarily helpful, but at the same time, the other side of it, which is, well, you know, we, we don't just, Nobody talks about this, so how, how could anybody know what the right way to approach somebody with mental illness exactly. is? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you you have to stumble your way through it because there isn't like a roadmap out there, you know. And I I wrote a memoir. I didn't write like a how to book, but my hope is is that people can learn from the mistakes that I acknowledge that I made um, in order to hopefully modify how they might approach this if they, if it faces their family, you know? Yeah. I mean, and you mentioned when you wrote your story that all these people started writing in saying, you know, thank you so much for telling your story. Here's my story. What do you think stopped other people from doing it and then you know what was it really like for you to have made the choice to become a voice for that 
Yeah, I mean, I get it because we as a society are not very respectful towards mental health, right? Like, I distinctly remember being when Julia was in the hospital the first time and she was experiencing auditory hallucinations, hearing voices. I, on the radio, heard a commercial where it was like someone saying, it was like a bunch of celebrities saying how crazy the prices were on a new car. And the person like is like, no, what's crazy is hearing celebrities tell you to buy this car. And it's like the entire premise of the ad was to basically make fun of auditory hallucinations, right? And here was my wife at that moment in the hospital experiencing those. And there was a marketing scheme built around what she was going through and suffering through. So like, I totally get why people want to keep this to themselves. And I also understand people are private, you know? Um, I, of course, have things that I want to be private about, but I... You know, I'm just generally more okay with sharing, you know, and I don't think this means that the best solution for everyone is to go around and broadcasting your story to everybody. But I do think that if you feel like you trust people, then you can let them in and they might be able to help in a way that you wouldn't expect if you're too afraid to let them in, you know, and so I, the reason Julie and I wanted to go more public is because at the core, I trusted that I was telling this story in a way that was um, respected Julia's dignity and that um, kind of was protective and even nurturing of our marriage, that I wasn't out this to like, you know, vent about the way things had been, even though there's certainly moments where I'm frustrated, you know? And so even though a lot, obviously most people who read this book, I don't know them personally, I still, I'm secure enough in how it's written that I trust how they're going to read it, you know, that I don't think they're going to go out there and be like, well, this dude's like exploiting his wife's illness just to write a book because I know that's not what I was doing, you know, and, and I know that that's not how it, or at least I'm pretty darn comfortable that that's not how it comes across, you know? And so just being out there has been interesting um, because I'm a teacher. My kids all know this book's out there. Many of them have read it. Many of their parents have read it. I think I operate in my school a little differently as a result. You know, I've certainly had families who have maybe shared with me things that they probably wouldn't have otherwise because they maybe see a little bit of a kindred spirit now. Um, I also, it's funny, like... (laughs) A lot of people, you know, like if I'm out there like, oh, what do you want to, like, if, let's say where I'm at a party. Oh, what do you do? I, you know, I'll say I'm a teacher, but if I say I'm a writer, then of course they're going to ask what, well, what have you written? And that's going to lead to a much longer conversation that I'm not necessarily always up for, you know, like in a, just like a social party. So there are sometimes like, it's really funny, Julian, I have this thing. There's like, there's some people where it's like, yeah, you read our book, no big deal. But there's others like friends we're getting to know. We kind of feel like we have to share this at the right moment because you want to make sure you actually have the time to get into this whole background. It's not necessarily something you always do with casual acquaintances, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think uh, I've, I've had uh, an experience of, you know, what, what do you do? Well, I'm a psychiatrist, and that, that sometimes leads to, oh, well, I've, I've got a question for you. It's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm just yeah. an Uber. I, I just want to go to the airport. Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I, but, uh, but I think the question of, um, I, I, I'm curious about how uh, sort of telling your story so there, there's there's sort of changes in how you, you professionally as a teacher uh, how does this change um, how does it change if at all um, your your relationship um, with your wife yeah I actually think that um, the book was the writing uh, which took many years was something that may have in fact helped save our marriage because it became the way that we could communicate about this. Um, I, I, I said earlier after the first episode, Julia was really mad at me for how it had felt to her. And I was really wounded by that because I felt that my experience was really invalidated. And in our, in those two feelings, we had a really hard time communicating about what we had gone through. And we couldn't, we couldn't sit there and talk about it face to face. And so then I came up with the idea, well, what if I write to Julia about it, right? Because then I can make sure that what I'm saying has been edited and is presented in a way that is more thoughtful than what I might just say in a conversation. And then Julia could read it in her space, and that could sort of be like the invitation to have the difficult conversation because a lot of it's already out there. So, in fact, the writing for me and the reading for Julia was a, a conduit to a lot of healing for the two of us, you know? And then what I would say further is that it's also become like an anchor of, of the standard we want to have for our marriage, right? Which obviously is not always lived up to. I mean, marriage is certainly not perfect and there's a lot of really frustrating moments, but I think there's a lot of idealism in this book about what a marriage is and how uh, partnership, how two people in a partnership can and should treat each other. And so a lot of times when we're not being great to each other, one of the things that might help check us is like, hey, let's not forget like what we agreed we wanted in this book about how we want to treat each other. Let's try to return to that way of being and not this you know, less kind way that we're being right now, you know? So it was kind of like a declaration of this is what I, this is what we want our marriage to be like, just like unconditionally supporting, listening, hearing the hard things and not getting mad at each other for them. And of course we don't always do that in practice, but at least we can remember that we have done that before and um, we want to aspire to that in the future as much as we can. Yeah. Were there times when you were writing the story where you remembered something and she was like, that didn't happen, or I never said that, or or a time where you remembered something and she was almost, like, embarrassed that that had happened? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, like, Julia had the first veto power for what ended up in the book, and the process was always kind of funny. Like, I'd work on a section, and I'd send it over to her, and she might not read it for a few days, and so I'd be working on a different section, and then I just would hear her like, what? You want to put this? You know? <laughs> and so then we kind of would have to talk it out. And yeah, we definitely remember things differently, but that's okay. And I think Julia got to understand that like, 
this book is actually, it's, it is from my perspective. And I think that's what makes it different. And I think that's why it's resonated with um, readers because it is from the caregiving experience. And so there's a lot of stuff that Julia remembers from being in the hospital that's not in there because I wasn't there. And those aren't my memories, right? And there's a lot of ways that I interpreted situations that Julia may have interpreted differently, but she gets it. Like, really at the core, while this is about us and this is about our marriage and it's about her illness, it's through my lens. And and that is the lens that is so, I believe, underserved. And so, um, yeah, we I, it, 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 it was good. And even just that, that process of, of editing it, like I said, forced us to have these difficult conversations. I think it forced us to confront something that is so painful and you know your natural instinct is you just want to move on from difficult times and like kind of bury them in the backyard and not have to deal with them but we kept forcing ourselves to re-examine them over and over again and i think that puts us in a place where now we both feel like we've really accepted what we've gone through and um don't continue to feel the pain of it anymore hmm I really like that way of putting it, um, that there was not feeling the pain of it anymore, that you've, you've um, come to some conclusion or some um, It does kind of feel like that, yeah. I, you know, the book does feel like a conclusion in a way, even though, even though we know that, you know, the journey still has a long ways to go, but at least the trauma of mental illness feels like we've, we, it's not traumatizing anymore. Hmm. I imagine, I imagine uh, as you as you describe this, I imagine some of these lessons um, might be more broadly applicable to, um, you know, uh, two people in a relationship having different perspectives on a particular event or uh, having to come to terms with, um, you know, strong feelings or, or, or challenges. Um, could you talk more about, uh, have you gotten any feedback from people who read your book who might not be in the caregiving role or, or people who um, might find sort of this was accepted as a New York Times modern love column, um, not necessarily a psychiatric Times modern love column. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I actually do think that although this book is about mental illness, it's it's primarily uh, a love story about a relationship. And um, I've I've what I'd say is that I've had readers who have reached out to me just saying this this speaks to my experience so much. And then I have others who just, you know, like at a book event, they might, they might be like, well, I, you know, I, I haven't experienced mental illness, but I, I'm in love and I, I'm in a relationship. And so it still felt like it was really relevant to them. And so that, that is also really um, just something as, you know, this piece of work that I put out there, the fact that people are reading it, whether they've confronted mental illness or not. You know, and it's interesting because the title is like, it makes it very clear what the book is about, right? My Lovely Wife and the Psych Ward. You know you're going to be t- reading a book about mental health. Um, and at first, Julie and I wished that maybe the book title could be more subtle and maybe not so overt about setting the parameters of what the topic was going to be. Um, but now I'm actually, I've really, both of us have really understand the value in the title which my publisher was pushing really hard because it's an invitation to see mental illness in a different way but also to see how universal the experiences of 
caregiving and being in love are, regardless of what the circumstances are. Yeah, and I know I'm, that you've also mentioned that being in a caregiver role in the hospital can be kind of complex and sometimes oh, yeah. not acknowledged. Can you talk yeah. a little bit more about that and what your experience was when she was sick and you're in the hospital and you even maybe in the later times where you knew a lot more about what was going on and had more opinions and had her opinions too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question because I mean, unfortunately the day of admission, I, I felt just so ignored, right? Like we showed up and they're all focused on Julia, which I get, but they basically were like, we're like, go away to me. You know, like we, we got this, we're going to handle this. Just come back to during visiting hours without really uh, orientation to me of where we were, what was happening, any of that stuff. Um, I found that to be really frustrating. Um, I did appreciate that there was a social worker who was dedicated to Julia's case and I was allowed to communicate with the social worker that was helpful. But, um, and she helped me kind of make sense of it. But honestly, I just had to go see a therapist in order to not only help me process, but even just understand the logistics of what was going on. And I called my insurance company and said, Hey, my wife's been hospitalized with a psychotic episode. I'm basically going through an existential crisis and I would love to speak to a therapist through this. And their answer was, sorry, you don't have any diagnosis. So the most we can give you is 30 minutes of therapy a month, which to me was infuriating, you know? So I ended up just, paying out of pocket because caregiving itself is not acknowledged as a burden, as a medical or psychiatric burden, even though it obviously is, right? Yeah. Caregivers at sacrifice their own health to take care of someone else and then end up having their own health issues, whether they're physical or emotional. And it actually, Julia's been hospitalized three times and it was not until the third hospitalization that I had one of her doctors ask me, how I was doing. And I think that was really, um, when it happened, it was, I realized how much, how desperate I had been for one of her professionals to treat me as if this was also difficult for me and that maybe I needed to be acknowledged in that front, you know? And so um, it's really hard. And I also, I say this and I don't like, want to blame the doctors who Julia has come across because I know that I absolutely know that they were clearly professional doing the best they could in the circumstances they were in, which is often like way too many patients, right? Not enough time to get to know your patients. So how do you even possibly have the time to get to know the patient's family and to be able to support the patient's family at the same time? And I, if I have like one wish, it was that we just created more time and space for the professionals, the nurses and the doctors to not just have to treat their patients as individuals, but to be able to treat their patients as interconnected family members and friends and professionals and all those other things so that they could be inclusive in how they were able to treat their patients. Um, of the perspectives of those who care for them and, and worry about them and want to help out. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I think that this is such a such an important and overlooked and you know I'm, I'm 
probably guilty of this myself as you know when I was on the the, the inpatient ward it, it is it is difficult but on the other hand like we as a you know psychiatry as a system needs to take seriously the fact that like we're not doing most of the work it's like you know family members and parents and siblings and neighbors and you know the 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 other people in somebody's life that are doing the heavy lifting of you know the day-to-day stuff you know they'll see us you know once things settle down maybe once a month or once every few months but exactly you know, there's like every day um between those things and 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 i i, I think uh you know you you've i i am glad you're telling your story because this really is an underappreciated um and frankly, underdeveloped uh, part of the mental health care system. Like, how do we better partner with families and, and friends and um, right. romantic partners? And I get it, too, because as a teacher, I often treat my students as students. And I don't always treat them as children who have parents that are working about them or children who have siblings. And so... When I'm at my best as a teacher, it's remembering that and not just interacting with the kid, but also taking the time to reach out to their family and see how this is going for them and how they're supporting them at home and how I can partner with them as an educator. You know, that's when I'm at my best. But it's so rare that I have the time for that, right? Because I got a stack of papers and I got a lesson plan and all that other stuff. And so, like, it, it, I think education has those same challenges that mental health has which is it is definitely a team effort but the members of the team don't always actually rarely have the time to actually talk to each other so if you could just we could we could just start over if you know all the you know bureaucrats and paperwork and all of that was just if we could do it right um, what would you want? Like, what sorts of groups or supports or therapy or team meetings? What would be, what would be best? Or what are some things that you've imagined or wished for um, happening? I mean, certainly, like, yes, a doctor to give you the time of day—that's um, nice. But <laughs> I hope we can hope we can uh, meet that and exceed it. Well, what are some some hopeful things that that we might be able to do in the future? Well, that's a great question. I think waiting rooms need to look a whole lot different than they do. You know, I think waiting rooms, there's just so much dread and unknown in them. And usually the only person there is like either a security guard or just like a, you know, the person who processes the paperwork. And what if instead you actually had people in the waiting rooms, whether it's volunteers who say, hey, I've been in your chair, so I want to be here available to talk to you or whether it's trained professionals who are able to answer any questions. Um, I just think because the waiting room is where it all starts. And when it starts on a tone of the door is closed, we'll let you in when we're ready for you. Otherwise, we're just going to be doing this work kind of off, out of sight. That tone becomes pervasive throughout, you know? Um, I also think that, like, when Julia was admitted... They basically, you know, it's really hard, though, too, because I think about you need to think about the, the privacy rights of the patients. But I wasn't allowed to be there at Julia's admission. And I wish I had because I feel like they were diagnosing the experience of her symptoms, but maybe I could have contextualized them and given her, give, provided a timeline that Julia wasn't 
able to provide because she was so psychotic and delusional. She's not able to like chronicle what she's going through. She's just experiencing it. And so they're labeling it, you know? And I felt like maybe the initial start could have been better if it wasn't just about symptom treatment, but about like hearing the whole perspective. But honestly, I don't, I'm not sure too much beyond that because here's a, here's a place where I get stuck, right? Like, I want to be more included and have my voice heard more, but I also don't want my entire life to revolve around my wife having bipolar disorder, you know? And there's times where like, especially as the author of this book, like I don't want to be a mental health advocate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't want to be doing nothing else beyond supporting her bipolar. I also want to just like chill out, you know, and like have fun and get to turn that side off. And so so I think it's a hard thing between inviting people in, but also not mandating it because there are some people who probably aren't as, you know, talkative as I am. And maybe they just need to have their space. So it's really hard to get into strategies other than just, I just wish the system was more inclusive. If there's one word that I think it's so lacking, it's inclusivity. We just need it. We need more voices in the room if they want there. We need more time to hear each other out and not just be told this is the prescription because um, and good luck getting them to take the pills they don't like. You know? Yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting to me because it sounds like, you know, as a psychiatrist, we often feel like we have an emotionally heavy job and we're, we're dealing with stories that are sometimes hard to explain to other people. And sometimes we choose not to because they're heavy or dark or, you know, but you already shared it. How do you keep those boundaries for yourself and really practice good self care with your story kind of out there anyway? Yeah, that's a great question. And that is one that's, you know, exacerbated, I I think that's the word, by the emails that I get, which are like, hey, um, the emails that I get are so difficult to read, right? They're they're so um, heartfelt and clearly full of pain. And I feel an, I I should put that in the past tense, I felt an obligation to respond and I would beat myself up if I didn't. And I wanted to honor with an equally emotional reply. And so just managing email became for me impossible. It really did. I felt like stuck. I felt constantly just like moping because I was hearing all these stories and feeling like I wasn't responding to them in a way that's meaningful enough. And so what I've had to do is make peace that I can't actually respond to everybody. I can't be there for every mental health crisis that everyone else is going to go through. Obviously I can't. And my hope is that even just them writing and knowing that someone read it, hopefully that enough is a start for them to heal a little bit, you know, and, and, and that's a way where I have to take care of my mental health and my sense of just stability and not 
not take on the the challenges that everyone else is facing. And I've I've had people who they're like, hey, I'm in the Bay Area too. You, I'd love to meet. You want to you want to like go get dinner? I'd love to treat you to dinner. And I I've I've never done that because I um uh, it's not that I don't want to meet new people. I just know that I'm not a I'm not a professional. You know, I'm just a guy who wrote this book, and I'm really really pleased and honored that you read it. But that doesn't mean I can necessarily help beyond just writing that you know and so i think it's this acceptance of what my therapist said good news bad news right you're not as powerful and for me that's a good news one because it's like i don't have to take all these situations on i still can focus on being a dad and a and a husband and a teacher and all and also just like an active person who likes to play outside and that's okay because that's allowing me to to be the best person i can be even if it means I can't necessarily respond to everyone who reaches out. Well, that's that's a, a great answer, and I think important for. I mean, certainly in the domain of mental health care, but probably for everybody, you know. Uh, for sure, and I can imagine the 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 way your day feels, right? And and that you need to shut it off and not just spend all night fixating on it, because otherwise you're going to go down. And you're going to probably just have to process your own stress. You know, I, I, the school that I teach at, some people live on campus. I do not. And a few of my colleagues, their partner also lives and works on campus. And I've just kind of thought that probably means it's really hard to get a break from teaching, which is also a pretty emotionally draining job. And I actually realize how lucky I am that my partner is not in education and so I can go home and not feel like I need to keep talking about my job, talking about my job. Instead, I can just like give an update as it feels right and otherwise be in whatever our family moment's in and be able to step away from the emotional demands of my work. Yeah. Now, I'm, So we appreciate your, your uh, perspectives on, on just so many, so many diverse issues uh, touching on your story. Uh, we've got a few more uh, rapid-fire questions uh, sure. before we wrap up. Um, so in a sentence or two, uh, what is your favorite book? So my all-time favorite book is Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. I read it for the first time in college, and I have read it two subsequent times. And it's like over a thousand-page book, and it's really dense. And I just adore that book. I think it's so brilliant and funny and heartbreaking and so well-written. Yeah. Um, I, you've mentioned some of these, but what do you think psychiatry gets wrong? Uh, I think that psychiatry gets wrong treating someone who's sick as if they're an island, you know? I also think psychiatry gets wrong that medicine someone often has to be there to administer medicine. And if it's really unwelcome medicine, that um, that's, a, that's a really difficult situation to be in, to have to be the husband who loves someone and more or less force them to take pills that they don't want, you know, without training, without the opportunity to talk about it with the caregiver, you know. So I, I really think the exclusion of the caregiving perspective. But I hope you're going to ask what I think psychiatry gets right, because I do, I don't want to just be like totally bashing 
psychiatry. Sure. Yeah. What what does he get right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it saves lives. There's no question about it. The advancements we're making in the understanding of the brain, although there's still a lot, we'll probably never learn about the human brain. There's no question about it. The, The lithium that my wife takes helps, has kept her alive. It's allowed her to thrive in her career and as a mother and a wife. And it's been through compassionate doctors that helped her get to finding that pill that's saved her, you know? And so I think that what psychiatry gets right is that the people I've come across in it are good-hearted, kind people who want to help and are dealing with a infinitely complex issue of the, men- of the, the human brain and are just giving it their best, you know? I, I've, never, I've never had an experience that would lead me to conclude that psychiatry is out for anything other than helping. Great. Who is a hero of yours, either alive or dead, fictional or real? Yeah. So I'm going to go with the generic one, which is probably both my mom and my dad. Um, My dad is the most optimistic, upbeat human being I know. And he gives me a lot of motivation to practice gratitude and celebrate the joy of life. And my mom is, I think probably the person who I modeled my caregiving after she's so unconditional and reliable in a, in a crisis. And we, we counted on her so much throughout these years of parenting and mental health. And so I really admire them as, as heroes for sure. Yeah. And what tips would you give to someone who is in love with somebody who has a mental illness? that's a good one i would say first the the most important tip i would say is to listen um i think everything else is under the category the umbrella of having the courage and the patience to listen to really hear the experience of the person you love even if they're mad at you even if they don't like what looks what you think is help, even if they think that the help is hurting, you have to hear that stuff because listening, I think, is one of the most pure acts of love. And um, mental illness, what they might say, can be really scary, really hurtful, really worrisome, but just listen. And I think everything else from there kind of will fall into place. All right. Well, um Thank you so much for joining us. Um, for sure. And uh, if uh, we we, uh, we want to um, just appreciate you and appreciate all of the the perspective you've given us. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate um, your interest. I, I especially like the opportunity to talk to um, professionals or an audience of professionals because you all know this field, you know, and the fact that you didn't think I was being mean to you <laughs> in this book. I'm so relieved because I was so worried when I wrote this that I, people might read it as like, boy, psychiatry is really bad. These people are doing bad things. And that's not it at all. You know, it's, it's flawed. I tried to look at some of those flaws, but I just, um, I, it, it makes me hopeful that people in the mental health field also see those flaws and want to do something to make them better. 
So thank you so much. Of course. And we also want to encourage people to go get your book if they want to read more and learn more and read your columns to also get to see your voice on paper. Awesome. Yeah, well, thank you for that, too. Of course. Thanks for joining us.